0: two thousand twenty-four. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th, and can't wait to connect with you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher, or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer, or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, educate, collaborate. Friends, I want you to meet my friend, Erin. Erin, thanks so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome, you're welcome.
0: Oh my gosh, what a great way to start. Actually, that's hilarious, that's a great cup. My favorite cup is has a picture of Chris Ulmer on it. Chris is a particularly handsome advocate in special education. He was a teacher. He has special books for special kids or something like that. He's super cute. And so my friend Jen made a picture for my other friend, Jen, or pardon me, made a mug. And it mm-hmm. says, it has Chris Ulmer on it. And it says, girl, I like the way you rocked that IEP meeting.
1: Oh, that's so good. That is so good. Well, for yeah. those, yeah, go ahead. came to cincinnati
0: so they have a picture of the three of them with the mug which is fun that's so good yeah hey
1: tell people how we met it's funny all right so we were at the copa conference 2022 right yeah in
0: february and
1: we were getting out of an elevator and there was a girl next to me that had curly hair and i have wavy hair and she was like how do you do your hair And I said, why don't you come back to my room? And I'm thinking, okay, she's going to think I'm a total crazy person, but that's okay. And let me wash your hair and put all these products in it. And then you, were you in the elevator with us? I think you were. And then we, I was like, Hey, you want to come in too? And then, and you were like, what are you guys doing? And then we proceeded to talk about the business of advocacy and all of that. While I washed (laughs) this gal's hair and put product in it. Yeah, That is how we became friends.
0: And I was going to rest, which I'm bad at, (laughs) but I was very anxious at COPA because I really hadn't left my house very much yet, like in the COVID world. And so I was having like really strong and super unfamiliar, like social anxiety. And it was really funny that I was going to rest. And then I got sidetracked in this like social event that had nothing to do with me. I have straight hair. And so- And
1: nothing to do with COPA either unrelated completely.
0: No. no. And I was like, sure. I'll go into a hotel room with two women that I've never met. Like (laughs) you aren't going to, I
1: think I literally said, you aren't going to kill me. Are you? (laughs) I I probably said, I'm not going to kill you. I promise we can leave the door open or something. Right, And so that's how we met
0: friends. That's how we met Aaron. Why don't you tell people about what you do, a little bit of background on yourself, your family, your experience, and why you
1: are a special education advocate. Okay. So I myself am dyslexic. I was in second grade when I found out. I can still remember that moment when I failed a spelling test that I studied very hard with my father, who is also dyslexic. So I get the test back and immediately I bombed it. And I asked the teacher, can I go to the office and call my dad? (laughs) Because I was really upset and they let me go to the office. I called my dad. Of course, he raced to school because what else does a father of a dyslexic child who has dyslexia do? They, they stop what they're doing and they come to school and we sat on the bench and I had my head in his lap and, and I said, dad, I'm stupid. Like, this is it this here is a test. I'm stupid. And here's my evidence. And he said, you're not stupid. You're just like me. You have dyslexia reading, writing, and spelling are always just going to be challenging, but you're always going to work hard. And you know, what takes, and my best friend happened to be a incredible, she's a writer now for a very well-known magazine and an editor. And he always said, you're not going to be like your best friend. You're always going to have to try harder in the area of spelling and reading and writing, but it doesn't define who you are. But in that moment, as a child, I definitely internalized what was going on. And that even though my dad did hit the best that he could to encourage me and give me the sunshine right at the end of a storm, as a child, hearing that I would always have to work harder was really difficult for, for me. And I internalized it through being in college and doing things like writing papers in college that I thought I would never be able to do. And yes, it took me longer to learn the process and to do the work, but I did it. But that little voice that we all have in our head, some little voices say you're ugly, your own voice in your head, some voices say you're too short, or you'll never be loved. And my little voice was, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to be able to do it good enough. So when you internalize that very young, life becomes kind of a marathon with a backpack of rocks going up a hill. That's how school was for me. It was just slow and steady. And I wasn't going to give up. That was never part of my possibilities. It was just wasn't, but I was going to keep climbing. And for all of you guys listening that have dyslexia or your children have dyslexia, there is, I have such a soft spot in my heart for all of us that have dyslexia, because I know the feeling of working so hard and still getting a C or a B and that having to be okay in that particular area. So that was my kind of experience as a child. I actually decided for my first degree to go to photography school. So, I have a bachelor's in photography thinking I'd never have to read again. Again, for those of you listening, that is not photography school. You do have to read, unfortunately. But I thought I was going to be able to get by that way and do something creative. And it turns out after I did that for a while, I decided to go back to school to be a special ed teacher. So full circle had to do all the classes in college. I was terrified to take, but I did it. And then I went and taught for a while, had my own kids. And then I, I. Don't share this a lot, but because this is Ashley and I will (laughs) share it and be very vulnerable when I talk about it, but, and I know you're part of the Down syndrome community and that's a big part of who you are and what you do. So I was teaching high school SDC and I had a lot of students with Down syndrome and they I can't tell you, they stole my heart. They, they, and this population of individuals changed me as a person, I fought for them. Like you would not believe. And when it was time to decide if the district was going to keep me, they decided to let me go. And interestingly enough, it took a while, a couple of years for me to get over again, Was this because going back to that little voice in my head, no matter how hard you try, you're just not going to be able to do it like the other people, the other people are in air quotes. It took me a while to really work through the fact that it had nothing to do with my rapport, my relationships with the students or the families. It really, it was school district BS that I'll never understand. I'm still friends with all the families that were in my class at the time. They were there when I brought my babies home from the hospital. Um, I have pictures of the boys, like holding my babies, feeding them with a bottle. And just like that population, I can't, my heart just explodes for them. But all of that to say, I thought that it was because I wasn't good enough. And now looking back, I realized, no, I'm literally an advocate in my soul. I can't hide it. And this will be for another podcast, but we know districts don't necessarily want the person that's advocating gung-ho working for them. They, in this district in particular, they'd like the Yeah. 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 They'd like the ones that just do what they're told and that's okay. That's not me. And I found my true passion through that experience. So in the end it was a gift it just took me a while to see it as a gift
0: yeah yeah and that's i think a lot of people in special education advocacy which is where you've landed have had similar experiences where their own personal experiences or their experiences as parents that start off as really emotional components turn into something well that that start off with really emotional components and also have pragmatic components turn into something that is super objective, like special education advocacy, where you're advocating within the framework of the laws and the guidance documents and the what we know about the diagnoses and that kind of thing. And so what we do as attorneys and advocates is we help the parents get from that emotional, highly emotional state to something that is more objective. I always tell people that's my superpower, mm-hmm. having been... Injured myself and physically disabled, having a vision impairment, having been a teacher, being a parent, I can see things from all of those lenses and I can do it very objectively as an attorney. And so I think it's really beautiful and also extremely, I don't mean common like in a negative way, but extremely common in our, in our fields that a lot of us come from those personal experiences. Super interesting. Okay. So moving into our real topic for today, which is early intervention. We want to talk about early intervention, particularly for literacy, specific learning disability of dyslexia. Why is early intervention so important? And if when you're answering, you could also address another question, which is, How do we identify the need for intervention with literacy skills? What sorts of things should parents be looking for if they suspect that their child might have dyslexia or some other academic deficit?
1: So I would say the first thing that most people don't say when they're giving advice is to hop on Google. But I have to say that when I, when you proposed this question, I went and did a Google search to see what would come up. Because when you are looking at putting in all your symptoms, right, of an ailment or not feeling well, you get some really scary advice when you go to Google. I was really happy to see what I saw on Google. And so I would say when you're, let's say you're looking at a three-year-old and there is this whole world of autism and early intervention, you hear those words together. You hear autism, you hear early intervention. And even if you don't have a child with autism, you're not surprised to hear the words together. But when you hear dyslexia or a reading, or we know it's a language-based disability. So most parents aren't saying language-based disabilities, but let's say in preschool, they're not picking up on the names of letters, for instance, or you're reading rhyming books and either they just really don't want anything to do with it or they're not able to repeat back the rhymes to you or they try to make a rhyme and it's not really a rhyme. (laughs) Those are signs of dyslexia. What I hope, and we'll mark this on November 29th, twenty. 22, I am putting it out to the world. I really want to get the awareness out and do something big with the words dyslexia and early intervention. Most people don't even connect the two. And the reality is look at family history. Is there somebody that has, they don't need to be diagnosed. Is there a family member that does not enjoy reading that had issues with reading, maybe not even reading, sometimes it's just spelling, ask your family members, what was school like for you? And a lot of times you'll hear, I hated it. I failed high school or something. And then you go, oh, okay. So you wanna collect data about your family history, you want to do a basic Google search, I will tell you some things, difficulty remembering numbers, letters, sequencing. My son is five years old now. And when he was younger, his intelligibility was really poor. And you could tell by looking at him, he had so much to say, and he couldn't get it out in an order that made any sense to anybody as he got older and his language became more intelligible it he would say things like mommy you, you beg me pick me up late we know he meant pick me up early but pick me up late really that those when you know time and space word retrieval trying when you see those cute little kids and it's like they're like and it's there they have the big ideas And they just cannot get them out. They cannot. Those are signs. Then when you get into preschool around four, most preschools are starting with letters and identifying them if, and writing. And if you see resistance at a very young age, again, those are signs. It doesn't mean that they have dyslexia, but I would encourage you to go to a speech and language pathologist who is well versed in dyslexia. Not all of all speech and language pathologists, although they should be trained, not all of them specialize in that area. So it you I have had the blessing of of having some speech and language pathologists in my life that do specialize in it. And just the conversations with them have been eye-opening. And don't rely, I wouldn't rely on a pediatrician. I unfortunately don't think that they have enough knowledge right now, but you could always find me and I will find you somebody in your area to go talk to. And just as an example, because of my own family history, my aunt, my father, myself, and we knew my son had dyslexia. We started intervention with him at three years old. And did we start teaching him how to read at three? No, of course not. Of course not. But we're working with sound manipulation. And through starting, we realized that him writing his letters was very difficult, very difficult. So that opened up okay, let's go to an occupational therapist. And it's very common for us dyslexics to not know right and left and kind of space in space and time. And when you would say to him, just writing a zero, wherever he started, that zero was in all different places all the time. Yeah. And going to a, an occupational therapist was also just very eye-opening and very helpful. And please, I'm I'm if there's anything that you will walk away with, if you turn this off right now and stop listening please the earlier you start the better. You want to get in front of it and while yes it's an investment, the investment financially that you make now consider it less therapy that you might be possibly paying in the future. Yeah. When there and yeah. yeah,
0: and I want to get to that kind of emotional component also, but when you first started with the answer to that question, I turned around backwards because I wanted to find overcoming dyslexia in my bookcase. And I thought it was red and it's white, but it <laughs> took me a second. But of course, this is Sally Shaywitz's Bible on dyslexia. And I looked for the exact quote and I can't find it, but pretty early on in this book, she talks about, and by the way, I'm going to open it in the other direction because the jacket's on backwards. I <laughs> I... She talks about how identifying as a dyslexic provides really good, just having a word for that struggle, for that set of struggles is so empowering to people with dyslexia. And I actually didn't think about it when you said that, thought about it when you were talking about early intervention and kind of the definition of it. I personally feel so blessed to be in the Down syndrome community because before I got one staple in my stomach the doctor told me that my kid had Down syndrome. And I said, what do we do next? And he had an answer. He knew when my child was seconds old that he had Down syndrome. And therefore we knew what to look for immediately. We knew what doctors to go to. We knew what therapies to start. He saw a speech therapist when he was like three weeks old. And so what a blessing that was to not only have the diagnosis, but then to have all of these people with Down syndrome and all of the research and all of the community members to have built these best practices and these guidelines. And having a name for dyslexia Mm -hmm. provides that really solid identity, but only if you use it positively, right? And I think a big issue with dyslexia is it's really hard to identify to the untrained eye prior Mm -hmm. to school age. And therefore you don't take advantage of that idea, part C, the early intervention, preschool piece Mm -hmm. of it, and so I just wanted to clarify that we're talking about early intervention by way, like not capital proper noun, early intervention, idea part C, but rather we're talking about catching dyslexia as soon as possible with that phonological processing, like playing with language piece. And if you have Sally Shea with this book, because I talk about it in every other podcast episode, chapter two is really all about
1: identifying dyslexia. That's what and it's I will tell you. you. Yeah. I will tell you that when I read to my kids at night, so my older daughter learned to read, like my jaw dropped. The first time she read a book to me, I was like, almost like jealous. Are you kidding me? You're seven. And you just like, what blew my mind. Right. And when I would read bedtime stories to them, eventually when her reading got better, she would say, can daddy read because something about children's books, they trip me up. I don't know what it is. I can read psych reports. No problem. Children's books trip me up and I would use the language mommy's dyslexic and that's okay. And it's going to come out a little different. And once I told them what was going on, it was such a beautiful moment that my son also could observe me being happy and calm and it's no big deal and being willing to make mistakes in front of them that full circle, my son was trying to do some work and it was involving writing. And my daughter, I heard, I wasn't even, I was in the background and I heard my daughter say, that's okay, but this is going to just be tricky because you're like mommy and you have dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautiful. And she said, I'll help you. It's okay. And if they didn't have the words for that, it could really feel a lot more scary than it is.
0: Yeah. 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 It's the identity. So I Mm -hmm. want to spend some time um, because we, as is always the case here on the podcast, we start talking and then we get short on time. And I think we've got something really important to cover. And that is, you were hinting at it a moment ago, the emotional component to to dyslexia and to all specific learning disabilities. I, I- we did a three part series early on in the podcast that was called all with a bunch of L's about dyslexia. Daphne Corder presented. She's incredible. And, and she like literally presented because long story short, she was at my conference audio didn't work. So we did it three podcasts <laughs> to supplement her, her recording. And so anyway, all of that to say, uh, Daphne likes to, I think she calls them my like cousins. To Mm SLD, ADHD is really prevalent in people with dyslexia, as are other medical, social, emotional conditions like anxiety and depression. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And you can also talk about how to support people emotionally when they have dyslexia and specific learning disorders.
1: Yeah. As far as the morbid disabilities, the sister, cousin, sister, you said cousin, I said sister. That's how my brain works. When I speak about, when I say dyslexia, I want the audience to know that I'm all, I'm, I'm not limiting all of what I have to say strictly to dyslexia. Of course, there's depression anxiety, ADHD. there there's a slew of other issues that may be happening at the same time, may be a result of. and I'm just speaking from my own experience and as a professional as well. when I talk to the parents I, I'm I do talk to students as well and I always tell them my experience in school, especially when it is very similar. I'm I'm very cautious when i have a student that has lo- i'm i am blessed to say that i while i got enough intervention to where i'm I, I can't spell well but i'm i can manage and there are some kids that are struggling so much that as an adult for them to hear me say i know what it's like just isn't enough because i'm not struggling anymore but i think that depression and anxiety and dyslexia come hand in hand We talk, the world is starting to see how trauma and we're talking little T trauma, not big T trauma. I'm not a therapist. I will, I'm all the therapists listening can correct me if I'm wrong here. Maybe you will call it micro traumas. Is that? Yes. It's the little T trauma that happens over and over again. That may seem subtle to you if you don't have dyslexia, but it's the kind of stress That a child endures when they think, oh my gosh, tomorrow, if the teacher calls on me, I'm going to be mortified. And so they're already planning what they're going to do to get out of having to read out loud. Please, dear God, may these teachers not be doing that anymore. But there are some that might not realize the impact. But they thinking, oh, the homework's going to be so hard. Oh my gosh, I don't want to, I'm going to go to science class. I'm not going to be able to read the book. It's the little, emotional traumas, but it's the frequency that these children have to endure over and over, sometimes multiple times a day. That type of trauma is detrimental. That is going to lead to depression. That's going to lead to anxiety. And we think about all the things that need to get done in a school day and the priority of what needs to get done. We have this, what we have to do with the state and what their recommendations are, and we have to follow the curriculums. But when you have a student, let's just say that's in the fourth grade, that is still not even able to name all of their letters, because they are getting the wrong type of education, And that's extreme, but let's just, we could even say if you're a year behind, the school isn't always a, a, a nice kumbaya environment. Kids laugh when other kids make mistakes. And do they intend on traumatizing their peers? Absolutely not. Teachers say things all the time. Their intention is constructive criticism. That's not how we interpret it. So I always, with all of my clients, I check in and my clients are the parents and the students are who we're working for. And we check in and we say, how, what's going on with their mental health? And I cannot tell you how many times parents have said to me, oh, they're fine. Like they're totally. And then I sit down with them and I say to them, look, pretend I'm like a coach. We're not doing anything. We're not doing therapy, but if there's one thing you could change about school, what would it be? And they always say, I hate doing homework with my parents because they don't know how to help me when I don't know words and they make, they force me to read out loud to them. And so immediately I see while the student might be acting like everything's okay. They're going through daily trauma with their, the person that the people that love them the most but they don't they there's a lack of education parents don't realize teachers don't realize the impact that they're having and the impact comes out later in life sometimes it doesn't always come out when you're in elementary school it comes out when the kids they leave for college and start drinking and drugging and, or all sorts of things. And then, Oh, what are you pulling out? What are you pulling? Well, out? So
0: something, a book, this is what happens when I do this at home, because I, I'm, I am a voracious reader. So I'm pulling out a book called the ADHD book of lists. This thing I wanted to pull it out anyway, cause I'm going to make Griffin do this. The author is Sandra Reef, R-I-E-F. I was a German teacher, that's the way I'm saying her last name. But it is, it's incredible. So it has seven sections and like section four is one that I refer to a lot. Study skills, organization, and other executive function strategies. So then 4.1 is working memory weaknesses and supports. So it like walks you through, that's on page 230. I'm just going to, for the sake of example, I'm just going to go through I- that. And let me, since I'm talking, I'm here to interview you, but here, this is an incredible resource. So as you were talking, I just made a list of goals that you could do, like topics for goals, right? So we've got a student with dyslexia, but we also have these sister-cousin conditions that are comorbidities of anxiety, ADHD, and whatever else, like Behavioral dysregulation, maybe. Yeah. Of course, we have to address those academic deficits. We have to address phonological processing and decoding and phonemic awareness and reading comprehension. We have to address those. But we also have to address um, the emotional regulation. So we need goals and specially designed instruction that help us with emotional regulation. We mm-hmm. need goals and SDI for self-advocacy, pragmatic language, advocating mm-hmm. for yourself. All of the executive functions, I'm going to give you an example of that here in a second from this book, all of the symptoms that are secondary to ADHD specifically that aren't executive functioning things like impulsivity, which could Mm -hmm. deal with shift. If a lot of behavioral stuff for kids with ADHD and dyslexia Mm -hmm. comes because they're like, oh my God, they just handed me that vape pen and I just did it. Like I just impulsively did it. I know better, but I did it. And the reason I interrupted is because nowadays when kids start to self-medicate, that was terrible in the 80s and 90s. But in 2022, even if you take somebody else's prescribed, what you think is somebody else's prescribed Adderall to write a college paper, it could be laced with fentanyl. And I am saying that to my kids all the time. It is a real risk. It is. And that scares the crud out of me as a parent and as an advocate, somebody that Mm -hmm. loves the children for whom I advocate, but okay. So by way of example of that, and this amazing book of lists, which I don't think somebody recommended, but I think it came up on my Amazon and I was like, that looks like
1: fun. So it talks about, can I add something? Yeah, Yeah. Can I just add something? There's also when we're talking about Adding goals to IEPs. I just read this IEP a couple of weeks ago that had five goals on the on mindset and thinking positive, this, that, and the other. And the child is extremely dyslexic, but the person responsible was the teacher. And I thought that's not okay because the teacher is not trained and also. How is the child's mindset supposed to shift when they keep coming in, doing the same thing over and over again and being little T traumatized daily? They're just supposed to miraculously pull a smile out of thin air. And that's the frustration where there needs to be a counselor. And quite honestly, I push more in in California, we call it Eric's, but educationally related mental health services. I want them to actually get, Therapeutic services, not a pat on the back. How you feeling? Great. Okay. Think positive. Go back to class. Mm-hmm. And so the attention needs to be. And I love the goals because we got to monitor what's going on. But with that, we need real therapy because just because the kid's smiling at school and doesn't mean they're okay inside. And also, I'm not saying every child with dyslexia is traumatized. No, and right. I want to be very clear. That's not everyone. But there is enough with in my practice alone that that I have seen where the school has completely ignored their mental health or has just given them like 10 minutes a month check-in with a counselor. It is so inappropriate. Also with behavior and dyslexia and comorbid disabilities diagnoses. I can't tell you how many clients I get and the kids, their behaviors out of control because they are saving face. They don't want to look stupid and they would rather be the bad kid than show everybody their academic skills. And that's heartbreaking because they get completely and utterly disrespected disrespected they get they get an eligibility of emotional disturbance yeah they get put in a behavioral program where then there's all these kids there and some programs are great but some aren't and then the kids really do have behavior issues it's not a quiet setting they can't learn to read in this setting now so it really is so sad how and, and, or they have ADHD, and nobody has actually looked at that because they have only, di- not even diagnosed, but only looked at the learning disability aspect. Then their ADHD symptoms skyrocket. Be- also, because I mean, it's, it all yeah. ends up it, looking, it becomes like-
0: circuitous. It absolutely absurd. becomes circuitous where one thing is feeding the other is feeding the other. And yeah. that's why I say, as adults, and I'm glad to hear you say it too we have to identify it and do something about it. We've got to address it. And then we've got to make sure that kids understand that it's okay to have those feelings. I think far too often we say, you doing okay? All right, put on a smile, put on your best face. In the autism community, we talk so much about neurodiversity affirming practices, but we should be affirming of practices that are sensitive and empathetic and supportive to all different learning types and learning styles, strengths, weaknesses in your profile. And that's, I think, exactly the parallel that can be drawn as we talk about these supports.
1: You said do something about it. And I hear far too often. I love that. But I unfortunately, in the position I'm in, I hear so many stories of Parents coming to me saying, look, I knew something was wrong. And I went to the school and I shared with them and they said that it was normal and they normalized developmentally what my child was going through and family history is family history. Heredit things, disabilities being hereditary, that's a non-negotiable. And so I want everybody to hear me. Do not stop because the teacher says it's normal.
0: Yes. Or because it was normal in your family. Like I was 38 years old when I was like, oh, I think I might have ADHD because (laughs) the things that my dad does that are funny or like hilariously annoying are things that I do. And. I was like, oh, and I used to think that I was, I like to tease that I'm a walking executive plan because I'm really good at planning and prioritization. I'm really good at that. But the reason I'm good at it is because it's a coping strategy for some significant dysfunction. And so I think that we get into these like familial patterns where we think, oh, that's cute or that's annoying. And this is like, part, I always, I used to say it's part of my personality. It is part of my profile. Mm -hmm. I'm part of my personality. And I'm like, it's part of my shtick. It's like charming if you smile, but if you actually get into the nitty gritty and you look at ADHD and you look at the, the secondary symptoms of ADHD, it's, oh, there's actually tools and strategies that can help you. And so that's why I make reference to this book. I won't go into the details because we've spent some important time doing other things, but The ADHD Book of Lists by Sandra is has some really good tools and strategies as well as explanations of a lot of these concepts.
1: I will be buying that. Yeah, (laughs) I really like it. Aaron, you
0: rock. I'm so happy to have had you on the (laughs) podcast as is always the case, time flies. And so thank you. Why don't you tell people in closing where they can find you in case they're in
1: California and they need an advocate? Okay. Yes, we're in Southern California, but we work with clients all throughout California our website is advocate to educate e o not the number 2 advocate to educate.com and honestly we love hearing whether you're you need some help you don't need help if you're somebody like me who i, I said something and you something resonated reach out we do a free 20 minute call Either way, you just make stuff up in the, in the intake thing and just say, Hey, I listened to your story and I'd love to chat. I love talking to all individuals that have lived and breathed this experience. And also if you just need some tips, we're here to help. So anything you need, we're here. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Bye.